Thank you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson, coming to you from the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas in beautiful early autumn, downtown Washington, D.C. Not so beautiful, the sausage making on Capitol Hill. Fair to say both tracks of the Biden agenda are stuck in the mud at the moment. Progressive Democrats won't let the bipartisan infrastructure bill out of the House because moderate Democrats in the Senate won't commit to a massive social spending bill through the budget reconciliation process. September 30th marked the end of the government's fiscal year for which the president has just signed a short-term funding bill to keep Uncle Sam's lights on for another two months. Just about two weeks from hitting the debt limit, the cap on the government's borrowing authority with no solution in sight. Watching all this, I'm sure with great interest, are financial markets, inflation, stock market volatility, artificially low interest rates, a pandemic-governed recession and recovery, a Federal Reserve with a seemingly inexhaustible balance sheet. You throw in some highly dysfunctional policymaking, and you don't have to be an expert in finance to see a real witch's brew for the American economy. But it sure does help to be one, and I've got two. My colleague here at the firm, Democrat Paul Thornell, he came to us after over a decade at the Washington office of Citigroup. He's worked on the Hill and in the White House. And Dan Nathan, principal at Risk Reversal Advisors, a hedge fund trader, an investment consultant. But you can catch him most days as a regular panelist on CNBC's Fast Money, which I do. Dan, Paul, welcome to 14th and G. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks, guys, for having me. Glad to be here, Dean. Thank you. Well, Dan, uh, as the Hill and the administration lumber toward funding the government and they edge up to the debt limit, Federal Reserve and central bank policy aside, what do you guys on Wall Street actually pay attention to here in D.C. and what do you disregard? You know, it's really interesting, Dean. You know, I've been in the markets for 25 years and, and obviously, you know, administrations change, uh, who holds the House and the Senate change and, 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 and you know, agendas change. Um, but there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's a lot going on in Washington all the time that if markets care to pay attention to, they can. Right. And I think over the last four years during the Trump administration, every little bit of economic um, kind of like policy got kind of politicized. And, and I think and this is not a political statement. It's just a fact. I mean, we just didn't have these sorts of things in past administrations that I recall in my years being in the market. So I think as we kind of turned the page and we had, you know, a new president, a new Congress, that sort of thing, we've just paid less attention to some of these things that we've become conditioned to in the years prior. But in the years prior, we also had, you know, a tax cut. We had, there, there was a lot of things that were deemed to be pro-business, right? And the markets kept on moving along until the pandemic. So I think it's really interesting in 2021 so far, the themes have been, you know, fiscal stimulus, um, this new budget, uh, infrastructure, that sort of thing. And so Wall Street and markets in general have paid very close attention to less so now. And I know we're going to talk about some of these other kind of political things that have come up, like the debt ceiling and such. But right now, the markets just seem to be taking all of this in consideration after kind of not really focused on it for much of this year. And I think that's why we're kind of in the throws at the sell-off right now as we kind of enter into October. Yeah, because you could take the sanguine view. I mean, it, it, you know, the government always eventually gets funded. The debt limit always yep. eventually gets raised, right? And it probably will this time as well. I, it may take, as it did in 2013, you had one of the rating agencies uh, downgrade U.S. debt. 
could have either a bond market event or a rating agency event as, as sort of one of those externalities that, that, that forces action on it. Yeah, I, I think that the 2013 one was really interesting. I think that was probably prior to, you know, the last few years in this last administration, the most divisive sort of period that we were in, right? Obama had won his second term, but, but lost the House. And I think the Republicans knew that they could really bring things to the brink. And I think that that is a similar mentality right now. And you use the word sanguine. I, I, listen, I just don't think that either party has any interest in watching things go haywire the way they did in 2013. And I think that from a reputational standpoint, you know, our government took a real hit, you know, having one of our ratings agency uh, downgrade our debt. So I, I just don't think that's going to happen here. And I don't think, you know, ultimately that's why markets are now down. The S&P 500 is down about five and a half percent from its all time highs made right. exactly a month ago. But I think all those sorts of things, markets hate uncertainty. And right now we have right. it. And a lot of people don't pay as close of attention as we do to this sort of stuff. And therefore, it's easier to kind of hit sell button first and ask questions later. Well, Paul, how about it? Because uh, we've got all these headlines that are taking all the oxygen up. But uh, I know we're keeping tabs on a slew of regulatory appointments the president will have to make for the financial services sector, including two new members of the Federal Reserve Board. Yeah, well, and it's actually uh, pretty amazing when you look between now and let's say next February, uh, there are going to be four open seats. There's one open right now between um, obviously the most uh, significant one is uh, who will chair the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell and the current there. Um, his term as chair expires in February. The vice chair of the Fed, uh, Richard Clarita, ex that term expires in January if I'm uh, I'm mistaken, and then the uh, vice chair of supervision, Randy Quarles, his term as vice chair expires, I think, in, in just a few weeks. And so he can stay on. But there are four opportunities that President Biden has to remake the Fed in, in a way that would be pretty consequential. Uh, there's currently only one Democratic appointee to uh, the Fed and Lael Brainerd. There is a major sort of force that's in some quarters of the Democratic Party to make the case that Powell should be take, should not be given another term. He's dangerous, um, Paul. What's he's that? He's dangerous, according to Senator uh, Warren. Well, that that could could be the case. I, I don't look at Jay Powell and think danger, but that's you know perhaps uh, eye the beholder kind of thing. Anyway, and and so looking at others who represent perhaps you know different perspectives that have traditionally not been at the Fed. I think it also bears mentioning that there would be a pretty consequential opportunity to put more diverse faces on the Fed. I believe there have only been three, uh, in the history of the Fed, there have only been three Blacks on it, never a Black woman. And uh, that's been something that many that, that many observers and constituency groups who have a significant stake in this, but also who are significant political players in the Democratic Party, have begun to weigh in on. Uh, so there are certainly names like Rafael Bostic, who chairs the Atlanta Fed, uh, Lisa Cook, who's uh, an economist from Michigan State, and Bill Spriggs, who's the chief economist for the AFL-CIO and teaches at Howard University. Three Blacks who, um, on any given day, can stand on their own two feet as among leading sort of economic policy thinkers uh, and have in different ways been uh, engaged by the Biden administration and demonstrated that they obviously have the stature, the relationships, and their names who will continue to be in the mix. But, you know, you look at the sort of circumstances that we face around these and how, you know, some of this is just a simple math, right? So if you have to get confirmed by the Senate 
And you, the first step to getting confirmed is getting through the Senate Banking Committee, which is a 12-12 split. And if you're uh, a candidate, a potential candidate, and there is a scenario where X number of Democrats on that committee say they're not going to support you, well, that's a problem. Now, because Senator Warren said she has a problem with um, Jay Powell, it does, it's not determinative of the outcome because there are certainly, I believe there are Republicans on the banking committee who would be supportive of his nomination. I, I did not realize there are only two, uh, there are only two current Democrat appointees on the Federal Reserve Board or one? Well, I mean, d- directly appointed to that. So, um, you know, because Jay if Powell this is if this is Republican monetary policy, what does Democratic monetary policy look like? Yeah, good, good question. The numbers, you know, there's there's seven seats on the Fed, one opening. So the six who are on, I believe Lael Brainerd is the only one who was nominated and placed on the Fed right. initially by a Democratic president. Of course, Powell was renominated, but right. started with Bush. Dan, you guys get caught up in all this personnel stuff. I mean, Powell is obviously a known quantity. And as you said, the market likes certainty. Or you just wait for a puff of white smoke from the White House chimney to announce the new Fed chair. Yeah, first things first, Dean. I, I mean, I, I, the white smoke thing is, is is good. It's a great visual. Godfather three sort of stuff for some of us here. Um, you know, I, I don't think Jay Powell is particularly dangerous. I know there's a lot of people out there who think that, um, you know, the U.S. Fed, no matter who the chair is, never never uses the opportunity of a grid crisis to kind of lower interest rates to zero. And, and I think what Paul's talking about a little bit is just in the last 20 years when we've had these instances where the Fed has, um, you know, done that, right? We've gone to the zero interest rate policy in response to um, the last two crises, the quantitative easing, the bond purchases, that sort of thing. You know, the the idea is that it further exasperates income inequality, right? And this is one of the biggest concerns. And I think, you know, diversity uh, among the Fed makes a whole heck of a lot of sense to have, uh, give some more air to some of these topics here, because what we keep doing, right, is we keep kind of privatizing gains and socializing the losses. um, And and that is a problem here. And that's why I think people like Senator Warren look at, at Jay Powell and say, He's a dangerous man. Now, I thought that was a little little bit goofy. And I think it's interesting to think back to um, President Biden here. I don't think he's nearly as progressive as a lot of people think. I think he has to speak to that part of his party. But think about um, how much of the Warren Sanders agenda have worked their way into the Biden administration's economic policy. And I'd say none. You know, so Warren, if anything, is waving her finger just to catch, you know, just so she can make the case to her followers, um, if you will, of, of that move. So I think Jay Powell probably gets uh, renominated and reconfirmed. I think Paul lays it out really well. I think there's plenty of Republicans on that banking committee who are just happy with him. The last thing I'll just say about Powell and Fed policy is that, you know, what the markets are watching. If you are just, a, you know, one of these eternal stock market bulls here, you're perfectly happy with low interest rates, low tax rates, low, you know, quantitative easing, because it makes it really hard not to be invested in assets like equities or, or real estate or the sorts of things that people who have capital are invested in, right? Because we just go ever so higher there. You know, I'll just say this though, from the danger part. So a lot of people think a lot of uh, kind of Fed haters that this policy is something the Fed's painted themselves in the corner, that the balance sheet keeps getting bigger and bigger, that they can't take their foot off the pedal because they know the moment that they do, the market crashes. And you go back to 2018 in Q4, right? Because Powell was 
was raising interest rates. He wasn't in the job particularly too long. The 10-year U.S. Treasury yield as the Fed funds kept on going higher. I think every other meeting, their rate is raising a quarter point, got to about 3%. The stock market went down 20% in a straight line over two weeks. And so the, the, the risk of a negative wealth effect from the stock market going down is a belief that a lot of people who are critical of the Fed, they think that that is what they are solving for. Keep stock market higher, keep risk assets higher, and therefore, you know, we can keep tacking on debt. And so the question is, how do we get out of this great experiment? And the problem now that we have is financial crisis 12 years ago, we had the pandemic, which was the, you know, it is the quintessential definition of a black swan event, right? So how do we come out of this? And no one knows the answer to that, but you may be sitting here saying, why is the Fed still buying $120 billion worth of debt, 40 billion of mortgage-backed securities, and we have the hottest housing market, right, that we've seen since the, since the period that crashed the economy Great back. And, 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 then, and then the other question is, why are Fed governors buying mortgage-backed securities <laughs> while, while they're actually doing it? So the Fed has tons of critics from all different sides, right? They have tons of credibility problems, and they probably have painted themselves in a corner, but the mon- modern monetary theory people, they've won. It's over. There's no coming out of this. This is this is the business that we have chosen. How's that? Right? This is the life we have chosen. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, $30 trillion in national debt uh, we're running up on, running multi-trillion dollar deficits. You wonder if, if, if interest rates were allowed to return to any sort of market-based rate, uh, the go- could the government even service the debts? It's not a huge mystery why we've we've been this low for this long. Yeah, I think that's that is the the question, and it's not just here in the U.S. It's just sovereign balance sheets all over the planet have just kind of ballooned. And and you know, listen, I, I'm all for the Fed did what they needed to do, right? They have this dual mandate of stable prices, right, and then full employment. And what they acted on in February 2020 before Congress was ready to act, right before um, the Treasury was ready to act. They lowered interest rates. What they wanted to do is make sure that we did not have a credit event similar to what we had during the financial crisis. And they succeeded at that. And I guess the criticism is now, then they got the handoff to the fiscal stimulus, right? And PPP and all those sorts of stuff that kept people employed. What they didn't foresee, and they had no way of combating, is the stable prices sort of situation, right? It was impossible to anticipate the bottlenecks in the global supply chain. And I think that we've already kind of had a little bit of a glimpse of that during the trade war and the trade war never ended for all intents and purposes for a lot of things that were made overseas. So we started to see prices in um, in, in, in steel and, and some other things that are produced overseas that we use as inputs for manufacturing here go higher. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to be a really tricky situation for them to come out of. I suspect though, and I'll just say this, is that we probably go back to the scenario once the pandemic's in the rearview mirror where, you know, we're right back to, you know, prices being where they were and some of the dynamics of the economy. So, I, you know, pre-pandemic, U.S. GDP was averaging about 2.2% a year for the prior 10 years. That's post-financial crisis. I suspect right. we go back there um, in the not-so-distant future. And then maybe supply chains get reoriented a little bit. That might have already been happening. But at the end of the day, I think we're still going to be a very globalized economy. Very globalized economy. And Dan, I've heard you talk a bit about stagflation. Our old yeah. friend from the 1970s yeah. talked about prices creeping up, sclerotic economic growth. 
Uh, what's stagflation? And is it, do, yeah. you, do you see that as something that's going to be a controlling narrative for the economy? Yeah. So, so that's a great point. You know, on, on my podcast, on the tape podcast that I do with Guy Dami, my partner from CNBC's Fast Money and Danny Moses, who some of you guys might recall was prominently featured in the big short in the book and the movie, the book by yes. uh, Michael Lewis and the, and the movie uh, by Adam McKay. You know, Danny's been talking about this a lot. He was probably pretty early on it this summer uh, where a lot of people were like, well, maybe the Fed has it right as far as some of these price pressures being transitory. But what we have right now, stagflation, right? We have higher input prices, we have higher prices for shipping, higher prices for commodities, higher prices all over the place, services. Just look around, look at your Ubers of late, right? And, and then we're also having um, higher prices as it relates to wages. We've seen um, wages go up across the board for a whole host of different things, right? And then we have an economy, this goes back to what we were talking about, my belief that we probably go back to like a 2% plus or minus, you know, um, GDP growth. So if you have slowing growth, you have higher prices, it's the sort of situation. And then you also have unemployment rates, which are higher than pre-pandemic. And we have probably seven, eight million Americans that are still unemployed that were employed prior to the pandemic. That goes back to what you just said, Dean, when you started this off. It's a bit of a witch's brew. I'm not sure the Fed knows how to combat that. And then if you were to have higher interest rates, that would be a real problem. And I think it's interesting, though, right now that you've seen the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield rally precipitously in the last few weeks because the markets, or at least bond investors, are sniffing that out a little bit. But, you know, but Dan, you know, millions of Americans not working, but not for lack of jobs. I mean, you can yeah. you, you go up and down the main street of any any U.S. town and uh, it's it's help wanted, help wanted, help wanted. Restaurants can't service their customers. I mean, that's, I've seen it uh, time and time again. Uh, these, uh, you know, millions of workers left the economy pre-pandemic, the labor force, and they just haven't come back. Well, they haven't come back. Government transfers has obviously been a big part of that. And I, I know that that, you know, as a percentage of personal income has um, come down fairly dramatically in the last six to nine months as uh, expanded unemployment benefits have rolled off, but you still have at very elevated levels. So, so maybe some of the incentives have changed a little bit here. Um, but again, I mean, like, you know, this is a situation as I think about it the lens of the stock market. This is probably also one of the reasons why the market's selling off a little bit from the recent highs is that, you know, you, you do have this situation where if automation was one of the big concerns about our workforce pre-pandemic, you know what I mean? And now we have this situation where unemployment, you know, we were as low as 3.6% pre-pandemic, which was like a 50-year low. And now we're going to remain elevated because the way the workforce has changed, but corporations have to keep bidding up prices, right? That's going to hit margins. Right. So we have a stock market that's already fairly expensive as far as historical terms. And now we have a whole bunch of uncertainty. And you just mentioned it, Dean. We have not seen real stagflation in 40 years. You know, at the end of the day, the markets are going to have to start to price that uncertainty in and what it looks like to have lower corporate profit margins in, in an economy that is just not going to grow the way it could by just basically that uh, that tax cut that we had in 2017, we basically borrowed a trillion and a half dollars for the future and just handed it to the corporations. What did they do? They bought back their stock, which fueled stock market gains. And then what we did was we lowered interest rates in the face of this pandemic, right? Because we didn't know it was going to happen. So this is all like this really crazy situation for risk assets. Why do you think cryptos are doing what they're doing and NFTs, non-fungible tokens, little JPEGs are trading for, you know, hundreds <laughs> of thousands, if not millions. 
I mean, people are buying anything that is not tacked down right now because the idea that money is really plentiful um, and you just got to kind of put it somewhere that's going to appreciate because, again, taking it back to the Fed, you know, they're really hurting savers by keeping rates where they are. Yeah, I think one one thing to look out for is over the next two weeks, um, there really could be a significant moment uh, related to congressional activity uh, to raise the debt ceiling and, and, and frankly, and cover some of the costs of the Trump tax cut and, and everything else that's in terms of spending in the rearview mirror. It's not a forward looking, but this is Treasury is at the point where they've given two weeks when they can continue to use some extraordinary measures and cover the costs associated with debt that's already been incurred by the Treasury. And then after October 18th, Secretary Yellen has said they will not have uh, sufficient opportunity to continue to make those payments. And so that that's a problem. We have seen a version of this in 2011. We saw it in 2013. The standoff is between Senate Democrats are in charge and have tried to bring a provision of legislation before the Senate that would raise the debt ceiling and Senate Republicans who have objected to that. And I'd say what's different this time is that the Senate Republican objections are not founded on any sort of policy making effort, meaning in 2011 and 2013, there were many folks on both parties who wanted to you know, engage on the effort to raise the debt ceiling related to entitlement reform, uh, Medicare, um, Social Security. And there was the, the, the famed super committee that was created to try to create, uh, to try to resolve some of these differences. And then in 2013, Senate Republicans were objecting to raising the debt ceiling over the Affordable Care Act. But put all those aside, right now, uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is objecting to voting for the debt ceiling raise because he said the Democrats are in charge of all parts of government and it's their responsibility to do it, but also that he's objecting to spending the the uh, money going forward on the reconciliation bill that President Biden and congressional Democrats want to spend. Yeah, you know, I would just say that uh, Paul makes a great point. I mean, sometimes the markets can force the hand, right? And we've seen that with the Fed. We can see it with politicians. And I think Mitch McConnell, he was right in the middle of it back in 2013. And he probably remembers that no one comes out clean from those situations, right? If you have a stock market right. that's careening lower, he can point to the current administration or who holds Congress, that sort of thing. But, you know, at at the end of the day, you know, Trump used to use the stock market as a sort of uh, report card for how he was doing, which, you know, people like me thought was particularly ridiculous, right? Because we know that no one controls the markets one way or another. And so um, at this stage of the game, I think the Biden administration is very smart not to be, you know, Trump literally used to tweet out, New stock market highs. You're welcome. Like stuff like that. I mean, it was like the goofiest thing. Like if you're a markets participant, I used to like tweet. All right, there you go. Ding dong. You just ring the bell at the top. I mean, you couldn't ask for like a better contrarian sort of indicator. And they always used to top out. The flip side of that is if you keep your mouth shut, you work behind the, the, the scenes, right? You figure out what, you know, is the worst possible outcomes, right? And what how the markets are going to do. You try probably try to solve for that. So, 
here we are, you know, we're down five and a half percent from in a month uh, from all time highs. The stock market is still up 15 percent on the year. Um, could we go down 10 percent? Sure. That might be the sort of thing where you'll see the rhetoric among Janet Yellen at Treasury and some of the Fed governors, you know, kind of it's not supposed to be, you know, a little apolitical over there, but they kind of start grabbing McConnell and they start grabbing Schumer and they start grabbing some of these people and say, listen, things are going to get real if you guys don't get your stuff together here. You know what I mean? Because, you know, sometimes it's hard to put back together some of the pieces once they've kind of uh, broken a little bit, especially when you have things as fragile as they are right now. Yeah, it's uh, it it really is fascinating. There's there's no uh, there's no ask for fiscal controls or anything else here from McConnell. He's he's telling Schumer, I want the gaming license and I would appreciate it if you paid the licensing fee personally. Well, wait, so wait. That is a Godfather reference there, Dean. I see what you did. Okay, you fair enough. I thought you were going Ozark, though. That would have been like bringing it into uh, you know the, the current millennium. <laughs> and, and, the, and the answer is, Senator, you will get nothing. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Michael. So far. Hey, one of the main, you know, looking ahead here post-pandemic uh, and, and where we go, one of the main uh, sort of externalities a little bit out of our control is our main global competitor, China. We fought this trade war in fits and starts. A lot of interesting stuff going on over there. The Evergrande default, this huge Chinese construction conglomerate. You've got President Xi uh, cementing his power through an economic and political crackdown. Do you see, Dan, do you see this as a sign of Chinese strength or or Chinese weakness? I see it 100% as a sign of strength. And and I think that, you know, oh, wow. uh, if you, yeah. And if you listen to our, our podcast on the tape or you, you, you know, on CNBC's Fast Money, I mean, Guy and I in particular, we've been saying this for, for almost years now. It just seems like they're playing the long game, right? And we're just continually solving for whatever our next little meeting crisis is out of DC. And, you know, people forget that the Chinese people, for the most part, they only know a one party system. They're, they're not kind of being, you know, ricocheted back and forth between the, the political winds here and they fall into line and they generally, you know, that's, that's a big part of it. That's why when this Evergrande situation happens and they start having people who are invested in these properties or invested, you know, and they have any sort of civil unrest, they, they, they move their feet, right? You know what I mean? So they'll wipe out the equity holders. They want to protect the consumers. Um, and they're kind of smart about it, um, the way they think about it. So to me, you know, I, I'm obviously, you know, I think the way we've been playing uh, on a very unlevel playing field, and I think that is a bipartisan um, kind of view in, in, from the investment standpoint. But at the end of the day, we're playing a game that we can't win against them. Think about some of our biggest multinational companies, for all intents and purposes, have been locked out of China, if you think about, you know, uh, internet related companies, that sort of thing. And so there was plenty of aspects of Trump's trade war that made perfect sense. It resonated on both sides of the aisle. It's just the way in which they implemented it didn't make a lot of sense. And I don't think it made us um, any more secure, if you will. But it's, it is amazing how talk about something to unite the two parties, bipartisan effort to push back on the China threat, whatever it, it, the way it expresses itself. Uh, there, there might be, you know, between that and like natural disasters, I don't know if there's anything else that's more compelling for Democrats and Republicans. And I think what's what's amazing to see is that the Senate passed this year pretty uh, substantial piece of legislation, the U.S.-China investment the investment package, I'm, I'm forgetting the acronym, but anyway, it would be significant funding towards semiconductors and other sorts of things that on the innovation side uh, entrepreneurship side can address the China threat. 
And there were a significant number of Senate Republicans joining Senator Schumer. It's now sort of um, being negotiated in the House. But I raise that just to say there is no doubt that these sort of anti-China sentiments are as strong uh, on the Democratic side as the Republican side. And I think it's it's certainly the case that the administration is focusing squarely on it. I mean, the, the, the diplomatic impact of what occurred after um, the recent announcement with Australia, the U.S. Uh, and the U.K. on the submarine deal uh, was so consequential because of the impact that it had for this deal in terms of uh, purchasing uh, uh, submarines that required that Australia basically cut a contract they had with France. And the U.S. was going along with this um, and, and sort of leading the effort. And it, and it triggered um, one of the most significant negative moments in terms of the centuries-long relationship we've I had. I don't even France. think France recalled their ambassador, Re- recalled uh, the ambassador. Over, over the Iraq War, and and that yeah. was that was like the the low point in the last hundred years of U.S.-French relations. Yeah, yeah, hadn't happened. Uh, the ambassador is back, but I raise it just to say it's a question in my mind, at least: Does the continuing China threat prompt the administration to take steps on the? diplomacy side that has broader consequence in terms of international relationships and might compromise some of those while this sort of pivot to Asia uh, so compels almost a singular focus there. And, and, you know, I think that was clearly by most measures, seems to me, a misstep, but it was driven by this focus on China. How do we how do we handle that? Well, Dan, with the caveat that no one should construe anything on 14th and G for investment advice. Yeah. Uh, if you're the if you're the regular Joe investor out there and, and you do this every day on CNBC, but if, if you really thought the music were about to stop, if you really thought we were in for a, an enormous market drop and, and maybe a long period of, uh, of negative economic growth, all this money and equities, you got a 401k and IRA, where would you where where's where is the flight to safety if someone really believes we're headed for for some really bad times here, be it debt deficit, China? pandemic, all the things we're dealing with. Where do you go? Non-fungible tokens? (laughs) Yeah, I know. Well, I think there's a whole group of investors who are are new to markets who actually think that those are their markets from from here on out. They're just not particularly interested in in equities and in a 60-40 portfolio that maybe we own or our parents own, that sort of thing between equities and and fixed income. You know, I'll I'll just say this, that, you know, in the last 20 years, we've had three um, fairly substantial economic crises, right? The post.com, you know, recession that we had and then we had the financial crisis which was a multi-asset you know uh, correction um and in both of those instances we saw the stock market get cut in half and we saw protracted bear markets that lasted probably about two years or so and so you know it didn't take long maybe seven years each time or or or, you know seven years the first time and then four years the next time to get back to the prior highs i think the pandemic crash that we had february 2020 to the lows in late March 2020 was 35% of the S&P 500 peak to trough. And then within, I don't know, four or five months, we're back, you know, at those highs. So both of the last two instances where we had those 50% peak to trough declines in the stock market, 2000 to 2003, 2007, 2009, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield was about 5%. The 10-year U.S. Treasury yield right now is barely at 1.5%. Okay, so there's the big difference right now. And so, you know, at the end of the day, I think that the Fed 
can't let interest rates go too much higher for the purpose that you just mentioned. The idea of financing all that debt makes it really hard. So are we ever going to have another protracted bear market? I just don't know. Um, I think that the idea that we might be down a bear market is kind of defined by 20% from the highs. I could see us down, you know, 10% in another week or so from those highs at this point. So the, the, the question is, where do you hide out, right? And I think part of that is not trying to time the market. And so what I tell people all the time is about dollar cost averaging over time, stock market goes higher. Trying to pick individual stocks or sectors can be very hard. That's why a lot of people watch shows like Fast Money. Hopefully we're trying to kind of espouse a little bit of our experience in doing so. But when I think about trading, I think that people should think about a certain small percentage of their investable capital that they may want to invest in, whether it be an individual stock, whether it be in a cryptocurrency, whether it be maybe in some sort of investment property. That's what you do in a small portion. I think the large part of it, you just kind of slow and steady wins the race, dollar cost averaging and the major indices. I can't tell you that we're going to have another protracted bear market anytime soon. Those who kind of hate on what the Fed is doing and this um, interest rate policy and quantitative easing will tell you that there's going to be an absolute mess coming at some point. But I just don't know how you can invest for the future by planning for a big mess. Do you know what I'm saying? So I think that we have to have a little faith and we just have to be kind of disciplined. Believe in America. Dan Nathan, you can catch him on Fast Money on CNBC and each Friday on his own podcast on the tape. Dan, Paul, thanks for joining me on 14th and G. Thanks so much.